Welcome to session eight, which is entitled The Duties of a Christian. On page 291 of the Book of Common Prayer in the Offices of Instruction, the question is asked, what is your bounden duty as a member of the church? The answer given is, my bounden duty is to follow Christ, to worship God every Sunday in his church, and to work and pray and give for the spread of his kingdom. In a previous session, we have discussed how we pray for the spread of his kingdom. We've discussed Eucharistic prayer. We've discussed uh, personal prayer. So in this session, we will discuss what it means to work and what it means to give. How do we work for the spread of his kingdom? One principal way is through the use of spiritual gifts. A, quote, spiritual gift is a special talent or ability that God gives to each Christian for use and service to others. There are four principal passages in the New Testament that speak about spiritual gifts. Romans chapter 12, verse 7 says, quote, having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us. <clears throat> Romans then lists various gifts, prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving of money and acts of mercy as representative gifts of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8 says, quote, He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 10 says, quote, as each one has received a gift, employ it for one another as good stewards of God's manifold grace. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27 says, quote, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This verse is in the context of a list of gifts that includes tongues, miracles, healing, and such. The primary word for gift in these passages, so the word gift, we're thinking of a spiritual gift, the primary word is the Greek word charisma. A person who has a gift from the Holy Spirit has a charisma. The word charismatic is frequently used in our culture to refer, for only to Christians who emphasize a certain spiritual gift, the gift of speaking in tongues. However, the term charismatic Christian is redundant in the same manner as born-again Christian. One cannot be a Christian without being charismatic, that is, without having a charisma, any more than one can be a Christian without being born again. The concept of charisma is related to Jesus' identity as the Messiah. The Hebrew word Messiah and its Greek equivalent Christ mean the anointed one. To say that Jesus is the Messiah, or the Christ, is to say that he is the one anointed by God to save his people. Jesus' messianic identity is revealed in his baptism. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. He is revealed to be the one anointed with the Holy Spirit. He is the Messiah, or the Christ. On Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the first Christians. The church became like Christ, anointed. As 1 Corinthians says, quote, By one Spirit 
we were all baptized into one body, and were all made to drink of one spirit. In the outward sign of water, God pledges to us the gift of the Spirit. When the bishop lays hands on us in confirmation, God pledges to us the strengthening gifts of the Spirit. In receiving the gift of the Spirit, we receive a gift, or charisma, to use for Christ in service to others. Your gifts are things that God enables you to do naturally in service to others in the body of Christ. The person who has a gift is able to give it without needing anything in return. And people who receive the gift generally recognize that the person has a gift. One aid we use to help people discern their spiritual gifts is a spiritual gifts inventory. This is a separate handout, and we encourage everybody who is participating in the inquirer's classes to take this survey to fill it out, to answer the questions, and to determine what your particular gifts might be. It should be noted that, with regard to this handout, that it has some questions that seem different to some people or odd, but I've not yet spoken with anybody who answered the questions on the spiritual gifts inventory as honestly as they could, who did not, when looking at the results, discovered that it really had something to say uh, about them, that it was essentially accurate and, and also revealing and helpful in terms of how they might approach their own sense of ministry. Ministry works best, and according to God's plan, when the people doing the ministry are exercising their spiritual gifts. If we think that God is calling our church to do something, the way we test the call is by publishing the idea to see if some members of the church have the gifts necessary to do the work. If there is no one in the body with the gifts, the time, and the willingness to do the work, we can conclude that it is not something God is calling us to do. And it should be noted, many things the church do begin from the bottom. People in the church have a sense of call and they desire to start a certain ministry or outreach uh, and, and generate uh, enthusiasm for it through their own gifts and through other like-minded people, this is the best way, actually, for ministry to start in a church. Rather than having, say, the vestry or the leadership determine from the top down that this is what the church is going to do and then try to dragoon people into doing things they might not otherwise be inclined to do. Of course, when we talk about spiritual gifts and things people are called to do, we must note that there is some work in the church that no one wants to do. There is no spiritual gift for setting up and taking down tables and chairs or for cleaning up after church activities. It is the common responsibility of the whole body. Also, all Christians are responsible for helping the needy, for loving others, including our enemies, and fulfilling the general obligations of love and obedience. We cannot excuse ourselves from some duty of Christian faith by saying we don't have a gift for it. To use our spiritual gifts in the right way, we must develop a true understanding of the nature of the church. Many people view the church as a building or an organization to which they give money or time. They fail to understand that the people are the church. In the Old Covenant, God lived in the midst of his people in a temple building. 
in the new covenant, God lives within his people. The people of God are the new temple. Another way this truth is communicated in the New Testament is through the teaching that the church is the body of Christ. In first century Israel, Jesus did the work of the Father. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are extensions of his incarnate presence throughout the world. You are a living member of a living body. You are the hand, the foot, the ear, the eye. If you don't understand this and fail to exercise your ministry in the body, then the body is without a hand, a foot, an ear, or an eye. And other parts must compensate for the absent or inactive parts. A story told by one minister illustrates both the right and the wrong view of the church. He was approached after church one Sunday by a member of his congregation. She was indignant. She said, I met a man last week who needed food and a place to stay. I called the church on Wednesday several times, but no one answered the phone. I had to give him some food and put him in a hotel myself. Then she said, Don't you think the church should be available to help people like this? The minister responded, It sounds to me like the church did a very good job of helping him. Wherever you are, Jesus is present through the gifts and resources he has given you. It is wrong to think of the church merely as a series of programs offered by the church. Sometimes people will say, what is your church doing for people? What they want is a listing of the church's charitable programs. But what the church is doing for people is not defined merely by the extent of our corporate charities. What the church is doing for people is determined by the sum total of the daily ministries of its members. It should be stressed that much, perhaps most, of the ministry of the church takes place outside of the church building. We are called to use our gifts in service to others as we go about life from day to day. <clears throat> our sense of Christian vocation must transcend the idea of volunteering for things at church. Moreover, we are called to serve God in our life's work. One consequence of sin and the fall of man is that work becomes either drudgery or merely a selfish attempt to accumulate. In God's economy, the primary concern is what we have to contribute to the good of society, of others. <clears throat> Indeed, we will find our life work fulfilling only as much as our primary aim is service to God and others, and gain is seen as the byproduct. As Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So there's a few words on spiritual gifts. I hope you will take the inventory and find out what your gifts are and begin using them in an active way. The second topic of this class session is stewardship and finances, giving for the spread of the kingdom. The word stewardship is often used in church, but it is less frequently that people really think of themselves as being responsible for the care and use of resources that belong to God. Thus, talk about giving in church becomes an exercise in attempting to extract money from reluctant givers. The church aids and abets this faulty view when it resorts to guilt and gimmicks in stewardship campaigns. If Jesus is Lord in any meaningful sense of the word, then he is Lord of all that we have. 
what we do with our money is necessarily a matter of faith. The world views money as something to pursue and accumulate in order to get and do more things. The assumption of the world is that having more things will make us happier. From the perspective of the world, giving to God is what we do after we have satisfied our own needs and wants. The Bible reverses the priorities. The rule in Israel was that the first part of all the increase belonged to God. Leviticus says, quote, All the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Tithe means literally tenth. Israel tithed by measuring out one-tenth of all the grain and giving it back to God. In Exodus, God says, quote, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. The story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, the story of Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14, and the story of Jacob in Genesis 28 confirm the principle that the first and best, the tithe, belongs to God. This standard of giving was assumed in the New Testament. Jesus, as a pious Jew, tithed. While Jesus criticized the motives of the scribes and Pharisees, he commended their meticulous practice of tithing. We can see this teaching in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. The people of Israel were also instructed to be generous to the poor. A second tithe was taken every three years for the poor. The people were told not to harvest their entire field and not to pick up what fell on the ground. They were to leave some fruit on the vine, on the tree, and on the ground for the poor to eat. These giving priorities match up with the summary of the law. Jesus said that the two great commandments are, quote, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. God's people are to honor God with the first part of their income, the tithe, and are to be generous to those who are in need. Tithing is also part of the answer to covetousness, which the New Testament explicitly links with idolatry, Ephesians 5.5 5 and Colossians 3.5. Idolatry is to worship the creation rather than the creator. Psalm 24 says, Quote, the earth is the Lord's and all that is therein. In the original sin, man said of the creation, it is mine. Giving the first part back to God is the symbolic way we acknowledge God's ownership of all that we have. It is the way we undo the original sin and say to God, this is yours. The act of tithing helps to detach us from our money. As one company CEO said in a recent Forbes magazine article, quote, When I began to tithe, I found a freedom from my possessions. I don't hold on to things as tightly anymore. One problem we have with the practice of tithing and also the practice of generosity is that the devil has done a good job of teaching us his faulty math. The devil teaches us that giving is a zero-sum game in which one person's gain must lead to another's loss. Thus, if I give $10 to someone in need, he is $10 richer and I am $10 poorer. The Bible teaches that generous giving enriches both the giver and the recipient. 
There are numerous Bible passages that make this point. Proverbs says, quote, Honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first fruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. We take this to be a most Anglican of promises. In Malachi, God says, quote, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. In 2 Corinthians we are told, quote, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Jesus said, quote, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. The evidence for these promises is found in the lives of those who have made tithing and generosity part of their practice of the faith. There is a well-known story of a man who began to tithe from the proceeds of his business and gradually increased his giving over time. God so blessed his giving that he came to the point where he was able to give away 90% and keep 10 But there are also countless stories of God's faithfulness in the lives of ordinary people who are not wealthy. One young mother, who was a principal means of support for her family, began to tithe because she thought it was right. Within 30 days, she received an unsolicited job offer for more money closer to home. She did not become wealthy, but she discovered that God is faithful. There's also the story of a man who tithed from the proceeds of his business, and the business went broke. And he was asked by someone afterwards, Did you lose everything? And the man responded, No, I still have all the money that I gave away. The biggest barrier to the practice of tithing is fear. We are afraid that if we give the first part to God, we won't have enough left for ourselves. This is why tithing is an act of faith. We have to give to God first and trust that he will be faithful to his promises. As Hebrews says, quote, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that God is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In truth, we can observe that everybody does in fact tithe. We can follow a person's tithe, and we can see where his God is. As Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. One should be encouraged as one begins to practice stewardship to, to begin to give faithfully. One can, as God instructed Israel in Malachi, try God, test God, and see if he is not faithful to his promise to provide for us and to be with us in, in, in all the circumstances of life.